Hello, and welcome to Proximity Health's first Insights to Access podcast. We're fortunate to be able to kick off this series with an expert who is deeply engaged in the field, John Fox. John Fox is Priority Health's Senior Medical Director and Vice President of Medical Affairs. John has been part of Priority Senior Team since the year 2000. His training includes a bachelor's degree from the University of Illinois in Chicago in biochemistry and chemistry. He earned his MD degree from Johns Hopkins, where he also interned and completed his residency in pediatrics. John also completed a fellowship at the Center for Disease Control's Epidemic Intelligence Service, as well as a master's in healthcare administration from the University of Wisconsin. So, John, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. So what we want to talk about today is how payers engage with IDNs and whether or not IDNs are helpful or actually more challenging to deal with or perhaps neutral. How widespread is physician hospital consolidation in your service area? Is this pretty common that the doctors and the hospitals have joined up? I would say in general, especially in the area of oncology, that the rash of practice buyouts by hospitals has pretty much abated. And I think that's borne out in data from the Community Oncology Alliance uh, regionally, which has shown that the number of practices that were purchased in the last several years has gone down, albeit there are a large number of practices that are still at financial risk, given the ever-changing reimbursement climate within our country, including with Medicare and private payers. And when you say it's declined, do you mean the rate of consolidation has declined or the actual number of practices owned by a hospital has declined? And I think it's both because those practices that were most vulnerable were bought out early. But the, the acquisition by hospitals continues, but I think it's abated somewhat because of Medicare's change in reimbursement for 340B drugs, as you're probably aware that that rate changed to ASP minus 22.5%. So whereas hospitals may have been getting ASP plus 6% previously, they're now getting significantly less, which makes the value of those employed oncologists or any employed physician less, especially if a large part of their revenue is from drugs. Do you have any sense of what share of oncologists in your area right now are tied into an IDN of some sort? Tied in is a vague word. <laughs> I think if you look at the percentage who are actually employed by an integrated delivery system or a hospital system, it's relatively small, probably on the order of about 30%. Uh, when we look at in our delivery system at the percentage of patients who are cared for by employed oncologists, it's probably closer to 20%. Okay. But I think in every market, that's going to be different. Beyond directly employed, you see other kinds of relationships between the hospitals and the doctors that would in some way or shape or form describe an integration of some kind? I think most physicians, including most oncologists, are likely part of a clinically integrated network or a physician hospital organization or a physician organization of some kind. It's hard to imagine that there are practices that are still entirely independent. I know in our state of Michigan, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan has driven organized systems of care, which has prompted both primary care and specialty care practices to organize in those organized systems of care because of the financial benefit to both primary care and specialty care. So again, I think most practices are part of some kind of system but again, it's vague <laughs> to right. me. It, it, when you say integrated delivery system, that doesn't necessarily connote that there is a high degree of integration and collaboration and coordination. Yeah, as a payer, how do you see a, a clinically integrated network as being different from an integrated delivery network? A clinically integrated network is a, a business structure <laughs> that allows groups that have no other financial arrangement to work more closely together and get around some of the antitrust rules that exist uh, for the purpose of improving the delivery of high quality and affordable care. An integrated delivery network is usually owned by a single entity that may include 
practices, hospitals, post-acute care facilities, as well as home care agencies and durable medical equipment. So I think the difference is the ownership structure. Starting at the lower level of integration from the clinically integrated networks, what do you see as really driving physicians and hospitals' interest in joining together that way? Probably the biggest driver of these clinically integrated networks is, from my vantage point, is improvement in efficiency, the ability to aggregate data to identify patterns of care, and to more quickly leverage the resources of that clinically integrated network to identify waste and to improve quality outcomes. I think the challenge, though, still remains in these clinically integrated networks. Uh, How do you measure that? And do you have some leading indicators as opposed to lagging indicators that you're actually initiating and maintaining changes in the status quo? And when you say measure, are you speaking of financial metrics or quality metrics or some other kind of metric? I think certainly in a clinically integrated network, you're looking for quality metrics and, and utilization metrics. If you believe, for example, we're doing too many joint replacements and you're putting place a care pathway, which we're working on today, to reduce the number of potentially avoidable joint replacements, you certainly need to be able to measure that. And it certainly is a measure of quality in the sense that if we're overproducing a service, that we'd be able to measure that we're actually reducing avoidable joint replacements and while while being able to measure quality. Uh, Is it any easier to define or measure quality in the field of cancer? (laughs) Well, is it easier to measure? I've been to countless seminars and and meetings where we talk about how do we define quality in cancer. There are certainly some very easily measured numbers like are patients told whether or not their treatment is curative versus palliative? Well, that's a quality measure. It's one of 13 points of care in the 13-point care plan that oncology care model practices are required to measure. That's the Institute of Medicine care plan template, right? Yes, excuse me. So I'm curious then, you mentioned earlier in your region, you're dealing with perhaps 20% of your patients are being treated by an integrated delivery network, and most of the rest are in a clinically integrated network of some kind. At this point, as you're thinking about your relationships with the IDNs, what kinds of differences do you experience there? Is there an advantage of some sort that an integrated delivery network might bring to the table? I think it's too early to tell. In our region, these integrated delivery networks exist more in name than they do in in practice. The fact that they're all on the same EMR does improve the the likelihood of having the same information amongst the same providers, but it doesn't guarantee that there'll be good collaboration and coordination. And I think that's the key is that an integrated delivery system has advantages in having access to data, but it doesn't guarantee that data will be used. It really does require coordination amongst providers. So, for example, one way of ensuring that we reduce unnecessary hospitalizations in cancer patients is by ensuring that the emergency department contacts the oncologist before the decision is made to admit a patient. If that doesn't happen, or it only happens after the patient is told they're going to be admitted to the hospital, then it's going to be exceptionally difficult to avoid that hospitalization. And yet, uh, even in integrated delivery systems, there's this emphasis on improving throughput in the ED and making rapid disposition decisions. So unless you've got a process in place that, that can be reproduced with high fidelity, that ensures that a, an oncologist is called before a decision is made, it does no good to have <laughs> the same EMR. I guess I'm curious in terms of how this works, particularly in the case of an ER admission, is this the sort of initiative that's being undertaken by the integrated systems, or is this something where you know, Priority Health finds themselves having to actually take charge and get involved directly? Well, I think in the OCM, 
in which we're a private payer partner with Medicare, uh, but the oncology practices have a direct relationship with CMMI and their, with their traditional Medicare patients. I think it's the practices that are driving this as much as it is a health plan. And in fact, in our IDN, we're working on that together with the hospitals to avoid hospitalizations if possible. And if the patients do need to be admitted, that they're admitted to an observation status until we can decide more definitively, does this patient need to be in for more than 24 or 48 hours? So in the case of the OCMs, you see the physicians actually getting directly involved. And in the case of the non, the patients being cared for outside the OCM, you still see a large role for priority. Is that correct? I would say that's true. I, I think he who holds the risk has the greatest motivation for engaging <laughs> the delivery system. And that was Medicare's intent, I think, in creating this alternative payment model, the oncology care model, to create the clinical and financial incentives for providers to care in more than one way about whether or not patients are admitted to hospital. Okay. You mentioned earlier that you are, in fact, a payer participant in the OCM. What does that mean for a priority? I mean, how is what you're offering the doctors any different than what CMS might be offering them through the pilot program? As a private payer participant with CMMI, we're required to do a couple things. One is to have a care management fee, also called the MEOS payment by Medicare, to pay what I call a monthly care management fee to provider practices to cover a lot of the costs for services that they weren't currently reimbursed for. And that could be financial planning or advanced care planning or any of a a number of other things. But it also required that we have some sort of incentive payment that was based on quality metrics. So in the OCM model with traditional Medicare, uh, providers' incentive payment is based on their ability to reduce costs below a, a budget target, and that part of that payout is dependent on quality metrics. As a health plan, we didn't have the ability, because of small numbers, to calculate at a population level what that total cost of care should be for a patient. So we agreed that our incentive payment was going to be based on the ability to reduce ER visits and hospitalization. So those two things, the care management fee and the shared savings uh, based on Uh, quality metrics was constant across both Medicare and private plans. I think we were interested in participating in this because we had uh, already in place an oncology medical home initiative that was based in part on our success in the primary care medical home space. Medicare, uh, I'll give a lot of credit to because I think they recognize that even though they pay for 50% of cancer care in this country, Medicare realized that if they could increase the percentage of patients that were compensated under a comparable payment model, that that would further drive practices and reach that proverbial tipping point where they can manage patients more aggressively and in a manner where patients were a cost center and not a revenue center. And and so I think that's why that's the advantage to Priority Health and participating in this OCM initiative because we get to leverage the traditional Medicare beneficiaries on top of our own and working with physicians to change how they deliver cancer care. And are you actually seeing changes when you compare the OCM participants to the non-participants? Are you seeing a change in practice patterns there? Yes, we are. Uh, There are some things that are easier to measure than others, though. We can readily measure three quality metrics that report to Medicare. We can readily measure ER visits, hospitalizations, and length of time in hospice. And length of time in hospice and the percentage of patients entering into hospice is increasing, and hospital visits and ER visits are, are decreasing in OCM practices compared to non-OCM practices. I think having said that, there are fundamental changes in how cancer care is being delivered across this country, independent of OCM. OCM is just driving practices who are enrolled uh, more quickly to reach those goals. 
Do you have any other value-based reimbursement arrangements in place or programs in place with integrated delivery networks for cancer care beyond OCM? Not specifically around cancer care. There are a number of delivery systems who are at risk for the total cost of care for commercial and uh, Medicare Advantage products. Cancer is certainly included in that, and many of those integrated delivery systems have OCM practices embedded in them. When you think about the balance of power on selecting cancer treatments, you know, for instance, use of PD-1s, things of that sort, where's that balance of power lies between, say, priority and the integrated delivery systems that you're contracting with? Are they pretty much calling the shots at this point if they're at risk? I would say yes, they are. Our health plan's philosophy has been that that decision should be left to the physician and the patient about what treatment option is best for them. But what we do do is co-develop preferred pathways in several high-volume cancers, breast, lung, colon, melanoma, myeloma, so that we can reach a, a mutual decision about what optimal care is. Ultimately, again, it's the decision of the physician and and the practice decide what their preferred regimen is going to be. And that's what our goal has been to say, uh, can we identify what the most appropriate and cost-effective treatment regimen is that you would use 80% of the time? I'll just give you an example. In non-small cell lung cancer, patients have EGFR mutations. Providers have a choice of several drugs, including second and third generation TKIs. But those second and third generation TKIs are much more expensive. When we look at the, uh, and sat down with the practices to look at the outcomes differences uh, and the cost, they said, you know, those third generation TKIs are much more expensive but they produce much better outcomes. They prevent brain metastases and they treat brain metastases and we can't in good conscience withhold that treatment to patients. And so they use the more expensive regimen and that's that's right. their preference and it's certainly justifiable. Is that part of the priority pathway at this stage then? I, I, I wouldn't call it a pathway. It's a practices pathway but that's how we've agreed to work with our our larger practices. What's most interesting, though, is that when we sit down and and look at the cost of these different regimens, now we can put really big numbers on a piece of paper and show them (laughs) what the annualized cost of treating these patients is. But what's most interesting is that when you put the patient out-of-pocket cost on the table, that generates an entirely different discussion. Practices are really concerned about the financial toxicity and the affordability of these therapies. And even once patients blow through their donut hole, which is going to be pretty darn quick, uh, they're still left with a 5% cost for, for any drug that they're on, including these uh, oral oncology drugs. And when you tell a provider this drug will cost the, the $16,000 a month drug will cost a patient $800 versus a $10,000 drug that will cost the patient $500 a month and say to the physician, is the outcome with this $16,000 a month drug that much better that you can tell your patient that they should spend $800 a month compared to 500, it's an entirely different conversation. And so this is the, the the value, I think, of working with between a health plan and an integrated delivery system is that you can have those discussions. It's certainly more time-consuming and more expensive than than a health plan that kind of issues its pathways or buys their pathways program. And there are value to those, don't get me wrong, but I think we can get into a lot more nuance and a lot more detail when we sit down and have those discussions because the providers are actually involved in, in making those decisions. And in OCM, because the the dollars are theirs and they're operating against a budget, I think there's a much more palpable ownership of those decisions than simply putting in place a pathways program. And when you're having these discussions you know, around a pathways program of some kind, I mean, is this easier to do with an integrated delivery system or is that easier than, say, having the same discussion with a community practice? 
I don't think functionally the conversations are any different, and I don't think the outcomes are any different. Now, I'll say that we don't have any academic practices that, <laughs> that we're working with today, but I think the tenets are the same. And looking at the clinical outcomes, safety to some extent, and then the, the patient out-of-pocket costs, those are going to be the same discussions that we have with an IDN versus community-based practice. Now, I think okay. the benefit of, of uh, and I don't know if Medicare is going to ask this question, but Medicare may say, you know, do we have any, is there any difference between employed versus community-based oncologist in their effectiveness in generating savings in OCM? I'm sure they have that information, but whether or not they've analyzed in that way, I don't know. Would you speculate on what might happen there, what the finding might be? <laughs> um, could I speculate? I, th I think the behavioral science literature suggests that the, the closer the, the level of ownership, the more aggressive practices can be about changing their own behaviors. In other words, you know, if, if practices are at, at a downside risk and these are their dollars and they don't have reserves, <laughs> I think they're going to act much more aggressively than, a, than an employed practice where if they, if they don't hit their targets and they lose money, it's going to come from the institution and not the, the individual oncologist. That's my hypothesis, and it's certainly a hypothesis that can be tested. So I'm curious, given your druthers, you'd prefer to be working with community docs? Nobody has that luxury. Right, <laughs> there's, okay. there's a dearth of oncologists and oncology practices, so we'll work with anybody who's willing to help optimize outcomes in a way that keeps cancer care affordable. So I guess in terms of where your time goes, how much of your time, if, I don't know if you can calculate this or not, but you know, on a month-to-month -month or looking across a year, how much of your time do you actually spend working with the community folks versus the oncologists might be inside the IDNs? I think that's driven by the practices that are high-volume practices, and I would say it's about 60 community, 40 employed. In terms of the amount of time each would take, I mean, do you have to spend more time with the community guys to get the results you want, or is it easier to deal with the community folks? Again, our our numbers are small, and I think that's driven by the, the personalities and the structures of the of the individual practices. I, I don't know that one takes any more time. We've kind of got a structured approach to the, the things that we work on with the practices, but I don't think that's being driven by whether or not they're employed or not. I would say, though, that the community physicians can make decisions more quickly. Our, our largest practice is a, a community-based practice, and they're CEO and their COO are oftentimes at these meetings. We have monthly meetings and then meetings in between. And when you have the decision makers at the table, it's a lot easier to get things across the finish line in a more timely manner. So you'll have a direct line into the oncology folks there. You won't be having to work through the managed care office or anything of that sort. Well, I think that depends on, on the organization and certainly the penetrance of the payer with that particular provider group. In some of our practices, we have a very small percentage of their overall volume, and we're riding the coattails of Medicare <laughs> in this program. In other practices, we have significant percentage of their patients, and so access is easier. With that said, you know, practices are busy, and their their staff are busy, their administrators are busy, and, and if you've got a small volume health plan like ours, it may not be worth your time to invest a lot. You've already got initiatives in place, and that that makes good sense. That makes good business sense. Looking forward then, next two to three years, how do you see priorities relationships with the integrated systems actually evolving in your marketplace? Yeah, great question. I think in the big picture, both Medicare and plans are working to drive more providers, including IDNs, into ACO arrangements where there's early on gain sharing potential and ultimately both upside and downside risk. I think because of that, delivery systems 
are going to have to identify opportunities for reducing variation, eliminating unnecessary care or potentially wasteful care, and, and trying to define how they're going to optimally provide best care at a lower cost. And that's going to include oncology because in the Medicare population, uh, oncology is the number one or number two spend. And it's implausible to me that you can be successful in an ACO-like arrangement without including oncology. It's, it's fascinating because in some of our ACO contracts, they're only with primary care physicians. And I, <laughs> I give the analogy that it's like you know, you've got an 11-man football team, but you're only fielding your four primary care physicians and the specialists are sitting on the bench. It's going to be hard to be successful in a risk arrangement if you don't engage the specialists, including oncologists. Do you have any sense of whether or not the primary care folks in the ACOs, you know, where it's an ACO-centered, or I should say primary care-centered ACO, do you have any sense of how they're trying to manage oncology or do they just send the pa- refer the patient over and then wash their hands of it? I think it's more the latter and not because of any failure on their part, but I think they're focused on those things that are directly within their control to reduce avoidable costs, including avoidable hospitalizations, avoidable ER visits, reducing readmissions. I think that's where a lot of the focus is in primary care space, including care management initiatives to help patients better manage their chronic disease and care coordination with specialists to help improve the collaboration and coordinated care. So again, I I think primary care physicians have their plates full. I I don't think, especially given kind of the dearth of of oncology practices, that most primary care physicians have a large number of choices about where to send their patients. I think there are certainly areas in the country and even areas in, in the state of Michigan where primary care practices have lots of options, but many areas in our geographic area, the options are few. Okay. One thing I would do want to follow up on is you mentioned earlier how you're working directly with some of the providers on care pathways for oncology for the larger cancers. Do you see yourself developing a common set of approaches across your entire provider network, or are you letting the providers go ahead and have, you know, pick sort of their own approach to this? Right now, we're working with the larger practices to develop their own approach. Medicare and CMMI require that practices follow national standards of care. I can't remember the exact wording, but we all interpret that as meaning they adhere to NCCN guidelines. But practices can't be successful. Yeah, that's their only initiative. I used to say that in colorectal cancer, there were 13 different first-line regimens for metastatic colorectal cancer. And if every practice continued to allow their physicians to choose from one of those 13, they're not going to be effective in identifying and, and using the most cost-effective regimen. And in fact, interestingly, the staff that are most happy about the development of pathways are the infusion nurses <laughs> who now will use a common regimen for 70 or 80% of their patients and, and have to know a few others for those patients for whom that preferred regimen is not appropriate. But I think, again, I think as a health plan, we're going to continue to work with practices to develop their own pathways. But in the, in the future, I can't rule out that we won't develop a preferred regimen program with a pathways vendor. Right now, this fits us well, and it aligns with what the practices already have to do to be successful in OCM. Well, great. Thank you for speaking with us today. I think this was very helpful. We want to leave you with two key takeaways from our first podcast today. First of all, 
Plans such as Priority Health can be very engaged with providers at all levels of the system, and they can be particularly focused on either community or IDNs. Um, in John's case, he's found that IDNs are more complex to work with the community groups. Decision processes can be time-consuming with multiple steps and a larger number of stakeholders engaged. Second point here that John was very consistent with is the financial alignment between payers and providers is going to increase, initially taking the form of these value-based reimbursement arrangements, but also moving toward outright capitation for at least part of services and drugs and eventually all services and all drugs. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have any feedback you'd like to share for our upcoming podcast later this year.